beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. Today I speak with yet another new friend. This time it is recovery coach Jelena Wagener. I met Jelena as a result of the prompting of our mutual friend Makhati. She is the Pilgrim in Hills from the episode of 18 April 2019. It was during my conversation with Helena that I realized she has an addiction history and coaches from a place of true compassion. I truly sense in Helena a deep spirit and am excited to share her journey with you. This podcast is supported by the first layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. This is Helena's story. Sit back and enjoy. Helena, welcome to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm very good. On this beautiful late afternoon and both of us are sitting in short sleeves and the people are walking their dogs outside with jerseys and caps and everything and I think, am I missing something? I visited someone today and she kept on pushing a jersey on me. <laughs> she was quite distressed looking at me with short sleeves. And I normally get quite cold, but I'm, I'm really not cold. So me I don't too. know what, what the people are on about. I think it's because we're going to have such a good conversation. <laughs> Let's hope so. So I don't know you at all. I got to know you through Makati. Right. Our pilgrim in hills. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've spoke to a friend of mine the other day and she, she said, I'm busy listening to your pilgrim in hills podcast. I want to meet that lady. <laughs> <laughs> so I reckon that that's going to happen soon. How do you know Makati? I know Makati through something called Women on Medicine. Okay, Women on Medicine. Women on medicine, no, no. Women are medicine. Oh. Women are medicine. I love it. Women on medicine. Women on drugs. Druggies. Druggies anonymous. Oh, you know, these are other from NA. Okay. Women on medicine. That sounds lovely. What? What is that? Women on medicine is a group which started, think, about four or five years ago. The impulse was really, it started in Zimbabwe, at a place called, no, it actually, it started originally in Turkey. Then someone in Cape Town found out about it or attended something to do with it in Zimbabwe. And she then decided she wanted to bring it to South Africa. The idea behind it is that each woman carries her own unique medicine and that one can create a space where each woman can feel confident and empowered enough to bring that medicine to the rest of the group. Okay. So it very much worked with emergence. It was a loose structure. It would be a weekend retreat um, for the first three years. It was five days, actually. It would be a retreat. Most women would stay in the center. It was um, Cape Point somewhere. Okay. And... There would be some dialogue, some constellation work, Ooh. a lot of storytelling, 
beautiful this it was a beautiful thing where what would happen is different generations of women so we had everything from the early 20s I think the 60s okay would form groups like a fishbowl and they would sit in the middle and the rest of the group would sit around them and they would discuss with each other what it meant to them to be a woman in that age group it was quite fascinating so that kind of work okay. So then I definitely have to introduce that lady who said she wanted to meet Makhati because she's very much in storytelling, dialogue. Oh. Yes. You should absolutely. tell her to meet me as well. Yes. Well, I think if she meets the one, then she's going to get the other one as an as, as, as add-on. So. As, a, as a free gift. <laughs> yeah, as a free gift. <laughs> I recently joined something. So I've recently, I've always had a love for dialogue. But I've recently joined something called the Academy of Professional Dialogue. Okay. Academy of Professional Dialogue is an international organization. They're looking at dialogue as a profession. So the guy who started it, Peter Garrett, went to his dentist and they were chatting and the dentist talked about how when dentistry got turned into a profession, how much better service they could get. Now, Peter Garrett was involved right in the beginning with someone called David Bohm, I think is how you say it. He was a physicist. Okay. And he had this concept that we are the unified whole. Okay. That we're all part of a whole. However, humanity has become fragmented. And the reason behind that is our thoughts. Our thought processes have become fragmented and is very much focused on separation. Ah. Me versus you, objects, and so on, and then okay. it gets more and more assumptions, etc., etc. The whole thing splinters more and more. It's interesting because yesterday I had a two-hour conversation with a lady about separation. About mm. so when you said the word separation, my, my brain went, "Where did I hear that?" And then I said, "Okay, yesterday's." <laughs> well, there are no coincidences. <laughs> um, Synchro- synchronicity. Synchronicity. So. Where are you from? Are you Afrikaans? Or I am. Okay. Afrikaans. Because driving here, I thought it could be Afrikaans, German, and I, I tried to, to ascertain your accent when I arrived, and I thought, no, this is German. Very <laughs> Okay, Afrikaans. so Afrikaans and Maisi. Afrikaans and Maisi. Cool. Could not speak a word of English till I was about 10. Okay. Where did you grow up? I grew up, my parents, my dad's a geologist. Okay. So, nice. And his company had a um, policy of moving the oh. geologists every five years. Okay. On the mining? On the mining. Okay. The, on the mining circuit. Probably not the right word. <laughs> um, the exciting mining circuit. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved. Um, I started off, I was born in Palabowa. Oh, my word. Yeah. Me. What is it called? No, I don't know. I don't what know. a lovely warm place to, to, well, <laughs> to grow up. I didn't grow. I was there, I think, till I was two. Okay. Then we moved to a place called Copperton. Copperton is a very small Never heard place of close to Priska. 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 <laughs> if, if Priska is the big reference, <laughs> then this must have been my new. It was my new. So was it, was it a copper mine? It was a copper mine. Okay, exactly. cool. So we lived there for five years. That's Northern Cape. Northern Cape. Yes, cool. Then we moved to Barberton. Barberton, that is, oh my word, that's Mpumalanga. Yes, so we went from flat and dry to all those beautiful mountains. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Um, How old were you when you arrived there? Seven. Oh, that's a nice age too. Seven or eight, yeah. Yeah. 
because you're old enough to really appreciate. Oh, we loved it. I love that area. Mm. We had a huge property that went down the mountain. Oh no, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to, then things started going a bit awry. Then we moved to Petersburg. Okay. Which was really intense, very racist. First time I really came across the concept of racism. Okay. Um, my parents, I remember coming home from school, Petersburg was so racist that they believed that P.W. Bertha was a communist. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. So I came home speaking about just things that I've heard at school and my mother basically said that, that P.W. Bertha was giving South Africa away. And my mother basically sat me down and said, listen, you can't believe everything yeah. you hear at school. And I think from that age, I started becoming aware that me and my family were not the same as, the same as, as, okay, as yeah. others. How old are you now? I hate, I hate asking women that, I but to give, give, give us, give us com com context. <laughs> I am now 47. Okay, so you're five years my junior. Okay. So we're not too far apart, yeah. Cool. Oh, good. That makes me feel nice and I had fresh. family who've lived in Sunni. Okay. So loved, loved, loved visiting them. Loved that whole area. We weren't there for long. We were only there, I think, for a year. Okay. Um, and then we Sounds as if that's a thank God. Thank God. No, yeah. it was an awful, awful, awful experience. We then moved to Clarkstock. Oh my word. Yeah, which was also Northwest. We were there for five years and then my parents moved to Joburg where they are to this day. Okay. So you finished your schooling in Johannesburg? I did. Where in Joburg? Florida. Oh Florida wow. part of Rudaburta. You know, I grew up in Triumph. Oh wow. Yes. Hey. For those people who don't know, Triumph and Florida are what, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes apart? One of my closest friends lived in Triumph. Is it? Yeah. Oh cool. Uh, Okay, yeah, I was in the school for and The school that bordered on, on Rao, okay. when Rao was still Rao. Okay. Yeah. I know of it, but I don't know Okay. <gasps> okay, this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll switch it off and we'll talk yeah. about... <laughs> Let me give you an, edu an education about Wurzgel Florentu. Sure, Wurzgel was vastly superior to Wurzgel Florida. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, it sounds as if you're from a classic Afrikaans family. I am. How many children were you? Four. Four. Two Ooh, boys. Two as girls. well. The same. And where do you fit in? I'm the youngest. Me as well. Okay. No, we in our house the two girls were the oldest and then the two boys. We had the opposite. <laughs> two boys, oldest, two girls. <laughs> good Christian Afrikaans family? That's reformed? Well, good, I don't know. But we were. <laughs> what's Nederland? Nederduits gereformeerd. Yes. Yeah. I'm not sure what, NG, that, yeah. NG, what that translates to. Went to church right through till I was. What do you call it when you. When you get uh, uh, um, confirmed, confirmed at the age of 17 or something. Exactly. And then the Domini had a, had a issue with the length of my dresses <laughs> that I wore to church. So I decided that it was not for me. Ah. And I left. Which so I'm he couldn't keep thankful. his eyes off your legs, could he? No, nothing like that. He just, well, probably. <laughs> probably. Probably. But yeah, he, he, he asked me to start wearing longer dresses. Oh, my God. I thought, no. And those were still the good old days where... I suppose people didn't wear hats anymore, but definitely you had to dress up for church. You had to dress up yeah. for church, absolutely. I definitely apparently not in short dresses as well. Mm -hmm. These days it's jeans and t-shirts and... Really? 
I know my, my, my brother them are in a Enchet church in Durbanville. And mm-hmm. they go in in absolutely cattle clothes. Yeah. I haven't darkened the door of a church. <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> Since those days. Actually, I think that might have been the last day I went to church except for weddings. Okay. Funerals, yeah. It was actually, I can still remember, it was a long sleeve dress. Blue. Long sleeves, very short. <laughs> and did religion resonate with you? It doesn't sound like it. If I, may, if I may make an assumption. Okay, so, so parts of it did. I was quite an anxious child, so oh. I did a lot of praying growing up. I'm raising um, my hands. But if I remember my childhood, I remember anxiety. Anxiety and then at some stage kind of thinking, well, why isn't the praying working? Ah, yeah. So there was a lot of shame around, I must be doing it wrong, maybe I'm not good enough for God and so on. But I didn't give up. As I grew older, I did start questioning um, some things in the Bible, just because it didn't fit well with my mm. my kind of lifestyle. My parents still go to church. Uh, my father has a has a difficult relationship with the church. His father basically put his he put his children in an orphanage and uh, sold the house and took off preaching the good Lord's word. Oh my word! So and and so he. My father was still not in school, so he travelled with his parents until he was old enough to go to school, and then they left him at at a family member's house. So I think my father's relationship with the church is not an easy one. Yeah. But my mother's very religious and in a good way. Okay. Um, as you know, I've got a, a drug history, and I firmly believe to this day that my mother's prayers. That put me okay. um, on the straight and narrow, because I had no intention whatsoever to kill. I didn't know you had a drug history. Oh, you just <laughs> spill spill the bees just like that. Oh. I got. <gasps> <laughs> you should warn one before you drop you drop I bombs like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I had quite an intense, short but intense. I started off normal kind of LSD, um, marijuana. Then I got into Mandrax, and then I got into Valkanol, heroin. Then my parents had me committed to rehab through court. Mm. Um, so you were not a willing participant in this? Not at all. Okay. No. And and arriving in rehab, we... Machalis word. Okay. Very religious, eh? Very religious, yeah. state-run rehab. Men and women are separated. Very much run like a prison. It's got your different classes. You start at the bottom, sharing a big hall, and then as you move up through the system, you get okay. the rooms, you know, yeah. smaller till you've got... Kind and of how long were you there for? Four months. Okay. And was that your only only excursion into Riyadh? My only excursion into Riyadh. Oh, cool. Riyadh? So it, the penny dropped. The penny dropped. I think That's I wonderful. away long enough. Okay. Was it a 12-step facility? Nothing. Nothing. There just, was no just, therapy just of any sort whatsoever. So it was Except for only, a very dodgy psychologist. <laughs> so all they did was they removed you from the stimulus that makes you want to use. They removed okay. you and they there was a certain amount of work. So there was work therapy. We had to 
polish the floors and yeah. do work in the kitchen. And, and the rehab hour was, they call it, therapeutic duties. There you go. <laughs> so we had loads of therapeutic duties. You were not allowed to read books. You had to do embroidery or pottery or... Oh, my word. Mm. What did you do? I did pottery. Okay, oh, I love it. Um, I also climbed over the fence <laughs> and other things to amuse myself. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a pretty intense four months. I didn't plan on giving up. I saved up because they pay you, same as in prison. So I saved up the money. And the first thing I did when I got out is I went and scored. Okay. But it was just not the same. Oh my word. And what was the thing you bought with that money? What drug was it? I got some Vulcan. Okay. Yeah. That was At that stage, that was the only thing I was interested in. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then that was the last time you used No, I still used. That's the thing. Because I didn't know about 12 steps or whatever, I had no idea that one was supposed to go cold turkey. So okay. I still... I still... I only... I think I only used Vulcanol twice though. After I came out of rehab, then I still did heroin once or twice and I did cocaine once or twice. Okay. I still smoked occasionally. I smoked marijuana and I went through a stage where I drank quite heavily. I actually started working in a bar uh, not too long after rehab. It was my first real job. Um, oh. But it didn't have that same... It just didn't have that same... It didn't have that same obsessiveness about it. Okay. And today, do you drink? Nothing. So at some stage you stopped everything, all mind and mood altering substances. Exactly. How did that happen? Well, the first thing that happened is I started seeing a therapist of sorts. Okay. Completely new age therapist. I don't know if you remember Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus was some entity that was channeled. It was very popular in the 80s and 90s. No, I don't remember it at all. Um, I was still busy to hide. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this woman used, she was like some kind of a new age therapist. And she, it was visualization, most of the meditation visualizations. And what happened to me, I think it was a result, and I, I subsequently did some research, and sometimes Balconol and those kind of drugs do have that, that effect on the brain. I became very uh, left-brained, Okay. so I didn't experience any kind of joy for about seven years. Of I'm I was very logical. So what happened was I thought, my parents are paying a therapist. If I lie to her, I'm wasting my time, her time and their money, and I didn't want to tell her I'm using. So I stopped. And I still <laughs> occasionally use. Logic is that fabulous. I know, it was, it was great. People would say, Oh, you're so brave. And I was like, mm, yeah. But that's also, I think my mother's prayers helped a lot. And then over the years, I started meditating. Okay. And the, the drugs just, you know, just messed it up. Okay. Um, so it's lost, it, it, it lost its appeal. It lost its appeal. I mean, I have, I have, then I, I went completely cold turkey for quite a number of years. Till I met the father of my daughter, we now separated. Um, with him, I did LSD a few times, which were positive experiences. And I also did ayahuasca. I did ayahuasca, I think, three times. I wouldn't call it positive. The effects were positive. 
But I've now got no desire. I mean, I found I've, I do a movement practice, which very much takes me into those very deep um, transformative spaces. Movement practice. What does that explain? That so Please. it's called the form reality practice. Okay. It, the form or the, the form, form. The form, like okay. you get things have got form. Okay. And it was developed by someone called B. Pryor. He had a, um, a realization or awakened experience, I think probably about 20 years ago, and never been on a workshop in his life. Designer in the West End of London, someone had a workshop entry pass for the course of miracles they couldn't go they said you want to go he said okay fine he went and he had this incredible experience he was sitting in the group and he just fell into nothingness and he just went deeper and deeper till eventually he was completely in the void hmm. then when he returned his whole life fell apart i think he, he he left his family he couldn't he just couldn't relate anymore his brain and I've heard about other people having similar experiences, but he stopped working. Only work he could keep for, I think, five years. He worked as a cleaner. And then he developed the form as a way of communicating what his realization was about. He okay. couldn't use words. So he developed a set of movements where if people did it, they had a similar experience. And then he developed it over a number of years. So there's now five parts to it, but it started off as was half of part one, then he added the rest of part one, and then over the years. The, the, okay. Um, it takes me and, and most people I know that I practice with. It's a global community. Like this morning, I just messaged someone, said, do you feel like doing the form together? She's in Britain. I'm here. We connect via Zoom. We talk about what's happening, and then we'll post-practice. Oh, oh. Takes me into deep space, deep heart space, deep silent space, and at the same time, the teachings very much about integrating. So what would normally happen is there would be a new awareness. So I would go deeply into my body. The practice rests on combining body sensation, blackness. So you close your eyes and behind your eyelids it's this blackness. So instead of you, you'll allow your thoughts to run, but okay. you'll look beyond them. So okay. it engages the mind and then you'll focus on the heart. So it brings those three aspects okay. together. So it's not movement therapy as in body movement. So you want, how you would ideally do it is one person would sit and another person would do it around them. So they are movements. Okay. But when I'm here on my own, I just do it on my own. Okay. So what would happen is, while doing it, I'll suddenly realize a new way of relating to whatever I relate to when I'm in that space. And then the challenge is to integrate that. For example, a while ago, I clearly saw while I was practicing that I can't exclude anything. I clearly saw the amount of energy I spend trying to create a space of silence. So I believed in order to practice, I've got to feel a certain way. Okay. Then during the practice, I suddenly had this amazing opening where I could feel my heart and subsequently I could feel all the freakouts in my body. My mind was going mad, I was tight in the body, I was not comfortable, but yet I could still connect to the heart. 
means shortly afterwards I was I, I had to face a situation at work where someone was making me feel extremely she was uh, her behavior was triggering me quite intensely and I was doing everything I could to dodge her ah. then I had the experience doing the form and then when I opened my eyes I sat down I contacted her immediately and I said we've got a meeting and then I went into that meeting and I would just keep on focusing on the heart while okay. I was speaking to her. So that would be the kind of, and then something new. I've, I've never been able to be that triggered by someone because she was triggering me immensely, but I didn't leave my body and I didn't leave my heart. Okay. But I was still triggered. That's kind of how it works for me. Okay. Very interesting. I've actually never heard of it. I heard of it by completely by chance. There was someone in South Africa who started practicing it, Shakti Malan, I don't know if you know Shakti mm. Malan. Um, she died of, uh, about two years ago, but she was quite involved in the kind of tantric community. In Cape Town, she, she did a whole lot of work around sexual awakening in women. She then met B through her partner, and then she brought the practice to South Africa. Amazing. It sounds like a very inward journey. Am I correct? Absolutely. Okay. And if you can connect that to a sense of spirituality, spirit, could you, would you, what is your sense of, of spirituality? I'm seeing tarot cards lying there. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So one of my crutches is I'm unbelievably indecisive. <laughs> I don't know if you know the Enneagram at all. No. My type is, the first time I read it, I was like, that's so me, because it's characterized by indecisiveness. So I use the terror, not so much to tell me what to do, but to try and figure out what the hell I'm feeling. Okay. Well, for me, there's levels to spirituality. Awesome. Things like the terror, <laughs> you know, it's it gives it color and it gives it meaning. It just makes it more interesting, right? It's nice to play with mm. cards. But there's also that sense of knowing, you know, sometimes I find I get so overwhelmed by my own kind of inner patterning that it's very nice to have something like a tarot that you can check into and the answers you get are quite consistent. And then it makes me realize that there is more to life than freaking out. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> So that would be one part of it. I think for me recently, I think spirituality is about kindness. Yeah. It's about doing whatever I can to be as present as I can to whatever's unfolding. It's about never. I've never really tried to put words to yeah. it. So let me take my time. Please do. I think it's about connecting with the unknown and making it, being open to it and then giving it form. Okay. Through acting on it or through living it, living new awareness. Cool. Something that popped into my head was, you said your daughter was eight years old mm -hmm. and seeing that I don't have children, but they don't do religious studies at, at school anymore, do they? Do they, have a, do they have a no. choice? At her school, okay. there's, there's no, cool. no religious studies. Okay. And you're happy with that? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Absolutely. Awesome. 
you are now a coach. I am. A life coach. Recovery coach. Recovery coach. Mm -hmm. Okay. Recovery coach is like a life coach, but you would work to people either not deeply enough in addiction to have to go to rehab, preferably, although one could work with someone that needs to go to rehab to help them decide what the best treatment options are, or someone who's come out of rehab. And needs that constant uh, continual assistance. and Exactly, because I know when I came out of rehab, I had no idea yeah. other than scoring drugs. Yeah. yeah. That's where the 12-step rehab worked for me, because I came out and I knew exactly where to wow. go. <laughs> so, so there was no gray area. You go to NA, you go to AA, and there you meet a fellowship of people who support you. The 12 steps for me works. It works for me. And that's also the only framework that I have. So I'm, I'm always interested in hearing what other people, not in, in 12-step fellowships, how do they get their support? So do you feel sometimes that your way of thinking is understood by your friends who are not, who don't have a history of addiction? Weird question. <laughs> not at all. It's oh. actually a good question. So I'm going to answer it in several ways. Cool. The first is, I never went to AA or NA. When I came out of rehab, the group of people that I was friends with, some of them has been through rehab, and like NA was for people who were not cool. So I never even tried it. So I never went. So then my way of getting off drugs, I just ignored it. I ignored the history. Yeah. I didn't hang out with people who were using drugs. I just kind of passed cool. the whole business. Yeah. Then when I did the recovery coaching training, that was the first time I went back into a rehab situation. Okay. And that started dealing with the actual... Some of, I mean, I dealt with some of the causes behind my addiction through my spiritual journey and yeah. through therapy, but I never really dealt with the nitty-gritty of what taking drugs do to you, yeah. right? Because it takes you to horrible places Absolutely. where you do unbelievably unkind things to yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I call it a, a slow way of committing suicide. It's actually what we do. We just use the most horrifying way to kill ourselves. It is. Dehumanizing. Yeah. We will move back to the animal instinct. Not even, because I think... For me, maybe it's just the drugs that they were on. They made me very mental. Like for me, animals got certain instincts, okay, you know, yeah. where a drug addict has... Yeah, they've got instincts for getting drugs, but the, the instincts are blunt. As yeah, well. I like that blunt, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting it, yeah. Horrible. So then when I did the recovery coaching, I started seeing clients. I thought I'd better understand what AA and NA is all about, so I went. Yeah, okay. And the reason why I'm saying I'm answering your question is there was a fellowship there that I have not experienced with any people who hasn't been on that journey. Okay. I think what I struggled with is because a lot of the people in the groups I was going to was quite fresh out of rehab, I would then have to rack my brains to come up with stories to fit into the culture. Okay. Things that I, I, I wasn't really relating to myself yeah. as an addict anymore. Um, I had to almost... To, to be part of it, I almost had to reimagine mm. myself and okay, act yeah. from that space, which over over a period of time I, I didn't I didn't it didn't sit well with okay. me. But I loved being with people who understood the experience and understood the miracle 
of not doing it anymore. Mm. I think it's, it's you, you. You can only realize how, how fucking unbelievably <laughs> lucky you are not to do it anymore if yeah. you've been there because it's so hard. <laughs> so that is so. Yeah, I, I love it. That is so true. So so true. And I've got. Uh, I'm, I'm really lucky at this point in my life. I've probably got between five and seven. I've never thought of counting them, but people who. I've got one or two people that I connect to through the form, and then there's one or two people in my life that do uh, is quite deeply into family constellations, mostly through women on medicine. Okay. And then there's also another woman that I met through Women on Medicine, Judy Becker. She does a lot of facilitation work, so I've met, and she does a lot of ritual work. Okay. So through her, I've also met one or two people where there's a very deep connection. Cool. Um, of of what it means to really live. Yeah. Those new places. Yeah. So there's a deep connection there, but yeah, mo- most of them's never. I'm not currently friends close friends with anyone who's had a drug experience. My close, my oldest friend, um, who's no longer on drugs either, she was she, she was pretty intense as well. Um, but she's in Joburg and okay. we've kind of taken separate paths, although there's still a deep connection, we hardly have speak to each other. Cool. I'm very into Don Hari. I don't know. If I remember the story correctly, he had a brother who was an addict. And he was really fascinated by why is it that his brother does this to himself? And he started doing a lot of research and what he eventually discovered was that the opposite of addiction is connection. So that's a very big theory that, that I buy into. If I look at, I was always apart from and not a part of. And what recovery did for me is I became a part of something. And there I feel comfortable where I just didn't feel I fitted in previously. Mm. And um, so I, I, I like stuff now watching and it's, just, it's, it's fun. And, and for me, it's about when I go through a bad day, I connect. And it sounds as if, as if, as if you do the same in the fall. Am I Absolutely. correct? Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. So you live in Nuertuk. I do. And you mostly work from home, you say. I do. So, the question I want to ask is, how many addicts are there in Nuertuk? <laughs> I have got so, no idea. But you're making a living as a recovery coach? I'm not. Not? I'm not. Up to now, most of the recovery coaching I've done has either been pro bono, because people ah, haven't had money, yeah. or... I haven't seen any addicts in Nuertuk, just to... I, I'm sure they're around, but I haven't consulted with any addicts in Nuertuk. I know that it's quite rife in the schools. So what's happening for me at the moment is I'm actually going through quite a tough financial period in my life. I stopped working full-time when I had my daughter. Okay. And then when she was about two, me and my partner separated. And I haven't been able to work full-time. I was lucky in that I had part-time work, which I could do from home. Most of it was research-based, and then I would see clients when I could. And that ended in June last year. Okay. And no matter how I tried... 
to get a similar situation. It just never works. It just oh, never right. works. So there's been like a real driving me to engage with more group work. So I've been exploring using dialogue to offer support groups similar to NA and AA. Cool. But it wouldn't be based on the 12 steps. So it would teach basic dialogue principles, cool. listen, suspend judgment, respect and voice. And then there's a few other small things to make sure that a conversation doesn't go off track. Yeah. And then it would just really allow people to learn from each other. Okay. I was looking at doing a similar program at, at the schools. Mm. So for me, there's something Good. very valuable in pupils being able to talk to each other about it. And ultimately for the whole school to be able to have a conversation, not just the kids who tested positively yeah. for drugs. So that's what I'm working on at the okay. moment. But it's not bringing in any money, which is unbelievably stressful. And frustrating. And frustrating. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you know when you bring the work, you want the patients to mm -hmm. be lining up at the gate. Exactly. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> so it's just not happening. Yeah, I hear you. Most of my time I've spent on non-income generating stuff as well. So um, I just also live in the hope that what I'm doing will eventually resonate and start bringing the bucks. Exactly. Because we, we need to live. And um, I also discovered that most of my clients, I'm working on discounts. <laughs> a friend of mine has a, his own business as well. And he got a business coach. And the first thing his business coach did is look at his, at his client book and he said, what's your fee? And he said the fee and he said, so why is nobody paying the fee? They're all paying discounted fees. And the first thing we need to realize is what, what's your worth and ask that worth. And it's so bloody difficult. It sounds so easy to say it, but it's really difficult. Especially because there's a reason one became an addict. And the reason why we get into the, the healing field. We want to help. So if somebody asks for help and they can't pay, then you help. <laughs> Especially. So the good thing about not having had any money is I've realized how much shame there is attached in our modern society to not having any money, right? It's like, Absolutely. especially with the new age thing about mm. creating your own abundance, which is actually a fair amount of bullshit because if you look at the amount of people in the world struggling, good people, yes. it's a bit intense saying that they're causing it. Yeah. So I can understand that as consciousness, unified consciousness, yeah. we are creating the situation. However, it's easier to say when you have got money than when you don't have money. Yes. So from that point of view, I do try and meet people. And at the same time, I've realized that it's good to make people pay what they can afford rather than what they think they can afford. Yeah. Someone said to me the other day, and it's still dropping, and she said, they always manage to find money for drugs. Why can't they find money for therapy? And I like, good point. Very true, yeah. Very, very true. But then I thought about it with more, and I thought they stole and did all kinds yeah. of other terrible things, and I wouldn't want them to do that for therapy. Yeah, so. part, of, part of our recovery spirituality brings us that consciousness of we don't hurt ourselves or other people. So we're not going to steal from other people to, to, to live. So where we didn't have, I didn't have any problem to steal to buy drugs. Mm, nothing <laughs> whatsoever. In fact, I felt quite proud of it. 
not that I got away with it. That exactly. <laughs> I did so. When I went to study psychology and they, they have that moral compass thing where he looks at the different ages, I was like, oh, fuck, I never got past age five. <laughs> <laughs> so you studied psychology as well? I did. So I went back to university when I was 55 or 36. Oh, my word. Yeah. So I went through a whole. I went through a whole thing. I got the corporate job. At one stage, I was making quite a lot of money, and then I kind of thought, well, this isn't making me happy. Maybe I need something more. Then I started studying part time, and then I thought, sort of, if I study part time, I'll be like. At that time, I was really old in my forties. <laughs> <laughs> By the time I welcome finished, to being really old. <laughs> so. I went and did my degree. I sold my. I had a, a small townhouse. I sold it. Okay. I used the money. I went back a to BA psychology. I started oh. BA psychology, anthropology, and geography. Okay. And then I actually dropped psychology at the end of second year because I found it unbelievably boring. Me as well. <laughs> I hated psychology. I went to varsity to become a psychologist. I hated psych- and I hated psychology. <laughs> I hated it. But if I have to memorize it, was so it was so oh god, yeah, and so old fashioned. Where did you study? I studied at Rao, those, yeah, those days, Rao, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even do Jung, we had one class on Jung, and the freaking 20 something year old master student sniggered about Jungian therapy. Uh, oh, wow. He was into Freud. I looked at our psychology lectures and I just thought the one looks as Fucked is the other one. Is this really where I want to be in my life? And so I rather did an honest in sociology where I where I related with the people and I it was far more far more tangible and, and, and that I liked that I could identify with. And so, it's far more in the real world. Yeah. Because it really looks at the issues that people mm. deal to on a day to day basis and it ties it up to the greater influences, back to the no money thing. You know, psychology there's a very small part of it that really looks at how does systematic changes influence the individual. Yes. It's all like what's happening inside of you, which isn't really fair. No, no we, we ultimately function in society. Exactly. And Absolutely. we are hugely impacted. Totally. On that note, we're going to end. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It was lovely meeting you and you lovely too. chatting to you and hearing your story. And um, I'm going to be in contact with you to let you know when we go live. Ooh. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that you can use it as, as a marketing tool as well. Thank awesome. You. Look after yourself. I will do. I still find it fascinating how I can meet a stranger, sit in front of a microphone and have these most amazing conversations. I cannot stop thinking of how Meet Me in the Field is expanding my life. I really hope this is adding some value to yours too. I find Elena's the form work especially fascinating. If you want to know more about that, find her at www.realitypractice.org forward slash teacher slash bios forward slash Jelena slash Wagner. I especially think it weird how we grew up so close to each other in Johannesburg and connect on such a special level in Cape Town all these years later. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor or on Twitter at at Freddy or on Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. 
I want to thank Eliana for her time and energy in talking to meet me in the field. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.